to Kyle's internal monologue. In this episode, we're going to be covering episode 13 of Babylon 5 season 1, and that is Signs and Portents, one of the most important episodes of Babylon 5, and uh, is among my favorite. It's not definitely not my favorite. I know exactly which one's my favorite, uh, but that won't come till season 2. It's an episode called The Long Twilight Struggle. Uh, that, that one's a lot of people's favorites. But this episode is just fantastic all the way around. There's next to nothing wrong with it. It is fantastic for everything it is trying to do, everything it's setting up. Um, it is one of the foremost examples of how to do a, an episode entirely of setup, but make it so much fun to watch that you're always at the end of your seat watching this episode. You are never uh, bored. You're never uh, spending too much time thinking about uh, what is being set up. You're, you're just letting it flow over you. The in, in, It's that way every time you watch it. And then when you watch it, you know, after you've seen the show, and then after you've seen the show again and again and again, you pick up new things, new new ideas that are being set up, new new concepts, and this is great to see everything that's being set up and everything that's going to play out for the next five seasons. I obviously won't get into details until the spoiler section in regards to a lot of the setup, but, I mean, if you watch this, most people are going to go into this and notice that there's a lot of stuff that is being heavily hinted at that may show up in the future it is not it is not something that is clearly one and done it is not a singular episode it is very clearly a setup episode it's a fantastic setup episode as a result um so just the 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 interesting concepts that happened in this episode um i i I, it's got an a plot b plot feel to it until you realize that they're both the same plot and it becomes a way in which we can look at the previous 12 episodes and then bring that into a new context. So we have the Raiders here who are working for Lord Kiro, who, and you would assume that the Raiders are like this B-plot because uh, it's not given a lot of attention compared to the, the Londo and Lord Kiro uh, A-plot, quote-unquote, until roughly halfway through when you find out that the Raiders are working for Lord Kiro. And then they become the same plot. Uh, and what's interesting is that the raiders themselves have been this reoccurring um, threat almost throughout these past few episodes. There have they've been mentioned a couple times in every episode. They've been uh, sh- shown and in some cases even fought fought against. Uh, th- the past 12 episodes. Not in every one, but it, it's the closest we have to like a reoccurring threat, a reoccurring idea, a reoccurring uh, antagonist to the Babylon 5 crew. I mean, they haven't been major, it hasn't been in your face, but there's been a couple of episodes where they fought against them, they're, they're, there's constant mentions of like radar attacks and stuff, so clearly they've been building up. And that is used to show uh, j- just how... It, just how un uh, uneven Babylon Five is compared to everything else, that it is clearly outgunned in almost every respect. These pirates, basically, uh, it takes Babylon Five. It, it takes Babylon Five. Everything that Babylon Five has, just to deal with these pirates. I mean, it, it, it's insane. It's a military installation, but it is. It's it's a 
it's a it's run by the military but it's entirely a peace and peace garnering organization it is not military and we've seen multiple times that that everything has been outdated that even the star theories are a couple years old compared to everything else and it was important in that episode survivors when when the president was supposed to uh, show up and give them a new squadron of star theories that that was like super important and of course we saw last episode where all the all the dock workers are on strike because of the outdated technology on board like this is a thrown together station it doesn't have the updated technology it doesn't probably doesn't even have the proper defense it should have for being in a neutral territory, neutral space. Um, and it shows when a when one small ship, one, one small ship capable of solo jumps, is able to handle its own against Babylon Five, and it was only through Sinclair's clever maneuvering. Uh, that they were able to take out the raiders. They did lose some, and it, it was quite a lengthy battle. This is to show that this was a threat. This is a threat to Babylon 5 as it is now. And then near the end of the episode, the raiders get get destroyed by that mysterious ship at the end. I will not disclose the name of the ship or the, the, the name of what it belongs to. I will simply, in, until we get to the spoiler section, because I'm simply just relaying information non-spoilerly. Uh, this happens in this episode. So uh, I can say it. So very clearly there's a new threat on the horizon that is linked to Mr. Morden in some way because because Lord Kiro gave the raiders the eye and then the ship destroys destroys the raiders and then Mr. Morden shows up with the the Centauri artifact known as the eye uh so clearly they're linked um so there's like this weird new threat on the horizon that no one knows about really uh and uh, there's this concept that the the this the raiders are small fry they were small fish and there's always a bigger fish so they get knocked out by whatever this new threat is and Babylon 5 might not stand the chance against this new threat because it took them that quite lengthy battle and clever maneuvering in order to take out the raiders and then that new ship wipes out the raiders within a second just without a second thought, just boom, gone. Nothing left. So clearly this new threat is far more powerful than anything we have seen, and Babylon 5 may not be able to handle its own. Uh, so this is this, this is this is important. This is massive, and that's what I like about the, that the A plot, B plot merge into each other, become the same plot, and it's used to sort of a passing the torch in a way that they are passing the torch uh, that, that the raiders are now no longer a threat. Garibaldi even says that. Uh, so in, in and then of course they're taken out by the end of the episode, and then the uh, torch is passed to this new uh, threat, whatever it may be. Um, so it's a very clever the way it's done because it's used to to great effect. I mean, I I won't count this as a spoiler when I say, obviously in the five seasons, we're going to have more space battles and space battles around Babylon five. And these space battles are bigger, larger, more epic than this space battle. But this feels in, in context of season one, in context of what we've seen the past 12 episodes, like a big major battle, a big turning point for uh, Babylon five defending itself. And it was super small. It's just a bunch of pirates in one ship with a couple of fighters. Like, take the uh, look at that. You know, those who know this show 
uh, I won't say spoilers, but look at th that space battle compared to the space battle at Babylon 5 in Season 3. Everyone's going to know which one I'm referring to. Um, just look at that. Look at the comparison. It, it's insane. It's because Babylon 5 was it had to get prepared for this new threat. Um, the... Uh, the the other thing about the, the 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 merging of the plots is that Lord Kuro is an is an arrogant son of a bitch. I mean, he's he thinks he he should be emperor. That the eye, uh, this ancient heirloom of the Centauri, uh, that basically uh, belonged to the very first emperor. It's been in that family for generations, generations, and it was lost over a hundred years ago, and has now been found. Um, it's important. Uh, Londo is trying, you know, tying, as I was saying, tying into the A plot, B plot, where we have the, the, the Centauri stuff, the Londo stuff, and the, and then the Raider stuff, how they're all connected, that Londo and Kiro are trying to get the eye back to Centauri Prime because it may instill into the Centauri some form of rejuvenation. They have lost their way. I've been stating this throughout the entire thing, is that the, the Centauri... Uh, I mean, as mentioned in all the way back in the gathering, but I'll quote a specific line from Midnight and the Fighting, the great lion of the galaxy will do nothing. They have lost their way. They once were the conquerors of the universe. They were once to be feared. And now they're nothing more than a joke. Look at the way they dress. Look at the way Londo presents himself. He's a clown. He doesn't take anything seriously. Not anymore. He once was a great man, and he, his people were once great conquerors, but that's no longer the case anymore. And now he wants to, to borrow a term from, uh, uh, sadly, our current president. He wants to make Centauri great again. Uh, it's all about jingoism and, uh, and patriotism. It's uh, overzealousness and belief in one's country over another. Um, that's where Londo is. That's where Lord Kiro is, and that's where in the they want to rejuvenate, and they hope that this this eye, uh, this uh, this ancient heirloom of the Great Centauri Republic, may in fact instill some sort of vigor in their in their uh, in the people again, and may restore to them former glory. I mean, there's that great conversation between Londo and Kiro where uh, like the, this isn't the good old days. And, uh, and Kiro goes, what happened, Londo? You know, uh, what, what, where did we lose it all? Where did it go wrong? And, and, L and Londo goes, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's very clear that they are saddened by the current state of their, their, of their people and the way things are going, and they want to restore some form of glory, and that's what this entire thing is about. But of course... Because the way the Centauri are, they had, you know, Lord Kiro stooped to hiring a bunch of mercenaries. And naturally, the mercenaries turned on him because they found out just how valuable both him and the Eye is worth. And then they get wiped out before anything else happens. So, like, it's showing pure arrogance and that be careful what you wish for. Because that ties into one of the major themes of pretty much the entire series. But... The this weird guy, uh, his name is uh, Mr. Morden. Um, you know, he he shows up and he keeps asking people, "What do you want?" It's very simple. What do you want? Now, 
what do you want is a very common question and is often a question used in uh, in everyday life. Uh, everybody has a motivation and that, this is also very important, the writing of every character has to have a motivation. Uh, but the way Morden is saying it, it has almost a sinister turn to it. And he is, uh, and he goes to every ambassador with the exception, we never see him go to the League of Non-Aligned Worlds. Once again, they're minor, they're small scale. And he, we never see him go to Earth. But he's going to, uh, he goes to Shakar first, and then gets his answer, and he's clearly dissatisfied with his answer. Uh, that there's that great moment where 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 he he's like, "What do you want?" and and Shakar and Shakar, uh, you know, goes, "What do I want for dinner? You know, what what, what I want to do?" And he's like, "No, no, what do you want?" And then he finally answers, and he's like, "I, I, I want to repay back the Centauri. I want, I want to, uh, you know, suck the marrow from the bones, so thirsty with salt. Uh, everything is about vengeance, anger, uh, this circle of violence, this cycle of violence that is perpetuated by both the Narn and the Centauri's." actions and Morden is interested in what he's happy to say which is a bit odd isn't it but then when he when he afterwards after he's after he's done and he, he the car just stops and and Morden goes and what then what after you've taken vengeance upon this entirely and Jakar goes I don't know um, he, as long as my homeworld is is safe I suppose that's all that matters. And Morden thanks him for his time and then leaves, clearly dissatisfied with what he was saying. He was interested at first until that moment when when he was he was a plan that is so steeped in vengeance that it has no long term goal. Um and in clearly Morden was dissatisfied with that. I'll get more into that in the spoiler section. And then he goes to Delenn. Delenn is confused about why he's asking these questions and doesn't seem to be paying much attention. And you notice she is building something there. Um, it's a little nice little background detail. Uh, it's, it, and it may or may not be connected to some stuff that's going on because we've seen bits and pieces of this device uh, throughout the past few episodes and it's clearly getting taller and something is building there quite literally being built. I'll get more into that in the spoiler section as well. But then uh, he says something, and she she gets that weird triangle in her head that the other member of the Great Council had, and she looks around, and we see him enveloped, a nice camera trick of him being enveloped in shadow, and, and she tells him to get out. And there's that great, great ominous line where the camera zooms in on her, and she goes, they're here. Um, it, it provides some great uh, like tension and mystery to the audience of what the hell is going on. Why is Delenn acting the way she is? Why did he get enveloped in shadow when she looked at him? It's all very interesting, uh, and JMS doesn't give you answers. This is the great thing: is he knows that a good a good aspect of a good mystery is that it leaves it, it answers some questions you start developing, and then asks new ones to always keep you enticed to keep you ongoing to find out more and more about that mystery um if you had all the clues at the beginning you would immediately solve the mystery so what what why is Dolan acting the way she is why is this man mr morden enveloped in shadow when she looks at him 
and what does she mean by there here? All of these will be answered over the course of this series, but it, it does not need to be answered right now. Uh, he's building fascinating mysteries, and it really keeps you on the edge of your toes and just is like, oh, let's go, let's go, let's go. Uh, that's what's great about not only this episode, but this entire series, is Jameis really knew what he was doing. Uh, and that very clearly shows in this episode because of how much it in influences the rest of the series. Then finally, after after Delenn tells him to get out, he goes to Londo. And he banters down Londo, and Londo's like, this is a silly conversation. Yes, it is. Uh, and then finally, finally Londo answers, and it's all about the glory days. The good old days of the Centauri Republic. Uh, and also for himself. There's that great line in, in between his, in, 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 like in his speech, where he's like, I, 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 I'm tired of being the man, uh, I, I'm tired of being the man afraid to look, uh, look uh, backwards or look forwards. I want things to be the way they used to be. I want it all back the way that it was. This is entirely about Londo is tired of where he is. There, there's the implication throughout this episode is that Londo was at the end of his rope that he was done, that there's no point in him being here, his job's a joke, his life's a joke, he's a joke, there's nothing left. All he does is he gambles and he drinks all day. That's all he does. Um, and the eye gives him some sort of hope that him and Kiro could restore some form of, of glory to the, to the Republic again. That doesn't end up happening, obviously. Uh, but then he's given the eye at the end of the episode by Mr. Morden, and uh, and he's and they, they say, uh, you know, Mr. Morden goes, I w we will find you. Uh, when 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 Londo asks, where where can I find you so that I can buy you a drink? He's like, we will find you, Ambassador. We will find you. Um, it's clear that there's something more to Morden than there is than than what we see, and. There's something more significant about them giving him the eye than what we see. Again, there's there's a building, there's a building tension, a building idea behind all of this that you're you're given just enough to be enticed, but never, but never given the full facts. Um, another aspect of of Morden's stuff is when he encounters Kosh. You notice that he avoids Kosh when Kosh boards B5 after being away uh, there, there's a scene that, that that almost mirrors the way that uh, Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi meet in the very first Star Wars uh, Star Wars film uh, Star Wars uh, Star Wars Episode 4 A New Hope where uh, they, they, they very clearly were almost avoiding each other and then they encounter each other at the, the in the hallway the corridor and, uh, and we get that ominous line from Kosh of, they are not meant for you, you know, leave here now. Um, Kosh has not said a whole lot, and everything he says tends to be enigmatic, and uh, he talks in more of uh, puzzles. You have to decipher what he says. Uh, everything he has, everything he says is double meaning, or is not exactly what he's saying. Cl clearly, here what he's saying is very, very factual and very blunt, but we don't know the context of it. 
course, people who watch the show know the context of it, but we do not. Let's imagine that I'm watching this for the first time. You, I do not know the context, but I have, so I do know the context. But here, we are left entirely in the mystery, uh, the mystery of what happened. And Garibaldi even has that line near the end of the episode that Cautious encounters who was damaged, but he won't tell us why or what caused it. Uh, implying that there was some sort of scuffle between him and Mr. Morden, uh, as we saw when they were getting, you know, confronting each other in the hallway, but but we never actually see it. And so we're left in the dark. The, the audience is left in the dark what's going on, much like the characters. It really puts us in the headspace of our characters, whereas all of them have no idea what the hell is going on. We, they don't know what what is going on here in regards to everything. The, Mr. Morton has only shown up and weirdly asked the question to every ambassador, what do you want? But they have no idea about what's going on outside. They don't know that the Raiders got destroyed, with the exception of Ladira, who saw it in a prophecy, um, one of her visions. But beyond that, no one actually knows what the hell is going on. And it's going to remain a mystery for quite some time until, until things start showing themselves. So we are put in the headspace for characters. We we have a vague idea of what's going on, but nothing concrete. So that when when JMS finally reveals things, it has that much more of an impact. It really hits you like, oh, that's what it was about. Once again, this is entirely a setup episode, but a fantastic episode that I love to death. Um, uh, there's uh, There's a bit at the end uh where once again more setup where uh where babylon 5 is shown in a vision by ladira to sinclair about babylon 5 is going to get destroyed in some capacity i will i will talk the specifics when we get into spoilers because there's a couple things about it but once again a tantalizing taste of what is to come because for the most part, with a few exceptions of like mentions or or what have you, there's not been a massive connection between each episode. Most episodes have been one and done. Uh, besides characters and like small mentions of small plot points, etc., nothing has been connected, truly serialized. It's all been establishing the world, world building in a way that makes it more palatable to the reader or the audience so that when we start going serialized, we will be more accustomed to this world, these characters, and this idea. But this entire episode is about where we're going to be going in the future, and I will once again get it on the spoiler section. So everything to do with the mysterious new threat, Mr. Morden, what do you want, and this Babylon 5 prophecy of being exploded... Or like Babylon 5 is going to uh, to get destroyed, is all tantalizing clues and hooks for the audience to go, we're going somewhere. This may seem like a like a standard episode-to-episode, episode, like small mentions of continuity, but beyond that, nothing major Star Trek-style sci-fi show, but no, we're going somewhere else with it. This is going to be something new, something you haven't seen before. Um, so once again, uh, this episode is so important and so... So good. I just love it to death. Uh, the final thing before I get into the spoiler section is that uh, is that we get a nice follow-up. Speaking of like small mentions in continuity from previous episodes, but still making each episode stand on its own, is we get a follow-up from the sky full of stars. By the end of that episode, Sinclair had encountered at least some of his memories from the 24 hours and had learned some interesting tidbits 
uh, and left it off in the fact that he was going to try and discover more what, about what was going on. Well, now he's enlisting the help of Garibaldi, and by the end of the episode, we find out that Sinclair was not the first choice to be the commander of Babylon 5. And in fact, his name was very low on the list, but in order to go to cooperation of the Minbari government, EarthGov conceded to whoever the Minbari chose to be the commander, and they chose out of everyone on the list, hundreds and hundreds of people, uh, high-ranking officials, uh, you know, admirals, generals, you know, massive, important people in the Earth military, they chose a lowly commander by the name of Jeffrey Sinclair. Of course, we know that he was kidnapped by the Great Council at some point in the, that 24 hours and had something done to him. We don't know what it was, and we know that Delenn is there in, in some capacity to watch over him, as mentioned, if, that if he finds out about what's going on, they must kill him. Uh, then clearly they have something planned for him. Uh, what that is, I can't say until the spoiler section, but obviously um, a very, very interesting development there. Uh, and once again, this this episode is entirely set up and everything feels important, but to the to the audience that the, watching this for the first time, you wouldn't know what the new threat is. Uh, you wouldn't know you wouldn't know what that whatever the new the new threat that destroyed the Raiders were. So you're connecting to the plot threads that are carrying over from the previous episodes, such as Sinclair's Missy Twenty Four Hours, and the Raiders, and so forth. Now I'm gonna go ahead and get into spoilers real quick. So. Obviously, there's a lot to talk about, but I'm going to try and summarize most of it as I don't want to be here forever, and I don't want to talk about too many future plot points, uh, as those will obviously come up uh, when they come up. Uh, so Mr. Morden, of course, is working for the Shadows, this mysterious new threat. Um, and the, the Shadows are um, really well handled in the fact that we have the face of the Shadows, Mr. Morden, uh, who's not their hand, by the way? Like uh, that's a common misconception. Is he's their face man? He's their, he's their um, PR person, basically. But the the one that 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 that, uh, that is their hand, much like um, uh, the, the right hand man, much like Sheridan is the right hand of the Vorlons, um, is uh, is the one we meet in Zahadum. Uh, at the end of season three, and the intention was that he was the antithesis to to Sheridan, where Sheridan is very in-your-face uh, military commander. Uh, you know, the other one is very, uh, very, very, uh, very frail. He's old. He doesn't really take much frontline commanding. He's much more of a sit back and command from the shadows, pun intended, kind of person. Uh, so very, very interesting uh, concept there. But Mr. Morden is the face of the shadows. Um, and it would be great to see him in the future. Obviously, he has some fantastic scenes. And he, Ed Wasser, who plays him, is fantastic in the way he does everything. Everything, every line, he plays in a way that is very, very th threatening. Everything has a sense that there's more more to what he's saying than what he's actually saying. That there's always the hint of a threat. Um, that him and his associates uh, are far more powerful than you can possibly imagine. And there's no like there's no bargaining chip you can have with him. But he's also incredibly kind 
in the way he interacts with people. He's always very personable, very nice, big big old smile. Um, cracks jokes, such as when Lando was like, this is a silly conversation. He's like, yes, it is. But what do you want? Um, but everything has the underlying threat to it. Uh, so fantastic acting on his part. Um, you know, but I love how he was like, uh, when his first introduction, you know, uh, when, when the, uh, uh, when the, 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 uh, our port guard, you know, the border guard is, uh, taking his ID and goes, uh, you know, uh, that, uh, that this has been out of date. He's like, oh yes, I've been doing some exploration out on the rim, been gone a few years. Uh, and he goes, see anything interesting? And Morden simply replies, Yes. Uh, it's a very short answer, but of course sets up a whole lot because he was a member of the Icarus, the uh, the the long range exploration vessel, which was out that, that was going out to the rim to explore a planet that was uh, the, that that looks like it was a, it housed an ancient race that was that has long been dead and no one's seen before, named Zaha Doom, and on board was a woman named Anna Sheridan. Sheridan, you know, you know, John Sheridan's wife. Uh, so it's great to see them being set up and everything in regards to that. Um, and uh, of course, Delenn is building the chrysalis. She is building the the thing that will that will uh, channel the triluminary to create her to become a half human, half human body to fulfill part of the prophecy. The 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 conjoining of the souls of those two races, the, the balancing out. Um, so it was great to see that. It's just like a small minor detail. You don't notice it if you're not paying attention or you're just not, like, you don't know the show and you watch it for the first time like when I did. You don't notice, like, she's just building something. Okay, it's just something for the actress to do while she recites her lines. Oh, no, it actually has importance and is actually a plot point. It's really cool the way it's handled. Um, it's something like small and insignificant, like much like Corwin, like Corwin gets a couple of lines in here. He's not even named yet. He won't be named till next, next season. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a pretty much an extra, you know, he's a very minor character, only gets a few lines throughout the series. Only one major plot point that I can think of. And even then it's a comedy plot point, but he's still there. It's some nice groundwork being laid for future, um, future stuff. It's great. Uh, once again, Babylon 5 is so well handled in every aspect. It's amazing. I wish I could develop things that were this, this well done and well thought out uh, in my own writing. Um, and then uh, the 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 other thing uh, that, that I want to talk about is the Babylon 5 destruction. Of course, uh, as I mentioned, uh, nice, nice setup and clue for future things to come and keeps the audience's attention. But uh, uh, there's the, 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 the thing with it is there's actually three possible answers to how it gets it gets destroyed in that vision. Once again, as Ladira says, the the future is ever changing. We create it with our words, our action, our deeds. Uh, this is a possible future commander, and I and I hope that this future may not come to pass. Um, this, the original intention behind it was at the end of the fifth season, Babylon Five would be destroyed by the the warrior cast of the Minbari. Uh, the original intention was that Sinclair and Dylan would have a child. This being David. Uh, and that this child would is prophesied to be the great leader 
of a new generation Membari and combine, uh, pretty much combine the, 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 the Membari and the, the humans. Uh, he would lead them both to a new glory, and it would be a spin-off show called Babylon Prime, if memory serves. Um, this all gets scrapped as a result of, once again, JMS uh, being a good writer, you know, stories are living, breathing entities. They are, they often at times take on lives of their own. Uh, there's no way to fully control them because your characters and your your plot change as you change, and it is how the and when you sit and you plan something and then when you write it are two entirely different things. Um, so you can create new details and something may come to you at the last minute. Uh, there's a great example of that later in this series in regards to the way Emperor Cartesia is murdered. Um, and the fact that it was always supposed to be Londo and then he changed into Veer because he realized that he could, uh, he could use that to further Veer's arc, which is a fantastic way to do that. Um, but the, the concept here was uh that it was all it was all part of this larger narrative that he had and as we see because that it's supposed to be the the final shot of babylon 5 within of itself excluding the spin-off show babylon prime was supposed to be uh them escaping on a shuttle uh which we see in that vision uh leaving babylon 5 as it explodes and then heading to babylon 4. um that's the original intention that's not what happens. It gets changed, obviously, with Michael Harris' departure and other things having to be changed. David no longer becomes as important as he is. David is still mentioned several times. David comes around as uh, instead as Sheridan and Delenn's child. And uh, by the end of the season, Delenn, or the end of the series, Delenn is pregnant. Uh, but we never see David on screen. He's just mentioned several times. And by the final episode, of course, he's uh he, he's grown up but we once again we don't see him uh so it's some some ideas there of what, what the intention was and how he changed but the next thing the one that is proposed in the series itself is its connection to babylon squared and war without end that without the w without the decision to uh to take Babylon Four back, and back in time, and uh and to make it as a base of operations in the first Shadow War one thousand years ago. The shadows would be at significantly greater strength, which means they could easily just steamroll everybody. They can already almost do that, but it, for them it's more an ideological thing. Um, in, in regards to the, the way they think and the way they do things, uh, you know, it's what you want. It's conflict. Um, so they, 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 uh, in this alternate future, they, they destroy Babylon 5 to prevent them from, from taking over, uh, from taking Babylon 4, uh, back in time. Uh, as we see in the possible future where Ivanova is, is, sends out that last message before being destroyed, before being killed. So it's all a connection to what, what's going on with Babylon Squared slash War Without End. Uh, that is what's presented in the series as the possible future in which this happens. Now, there's also another reading you can have from it, which is the actual ending of the series. The actual ending of the series, as presented in the Sleeping of Light, is that Babylon 5 is decommissioned, and they destroy it as a result. Uh, so, 
Uh, we do see Babylon 5 actually get destroyed, and it explodes in one of the most fantastic and incredibly saddening, tear-jerky scenes of the series. Um, and we, we see that. Uh, so he does get destroyed, he just gets in a new context. Once again, as Ladira was saying, basically, the future is malleable, that it changes and it grows, much like writing does. So this... Uh, this possible future may come to pass in another way you aren't expecting. And that's what we do end up having, is that Babylon 5 does get destroyed, but in an entirely different context. Some people like that idea, some people don't. I quite like it because it's a clever inversion and subverts your expectations. And I know that has kind of become a buzzword of bad bad writing considering the uh, considering uh, Game of Thrones ending, but subverting an audience's expectations is actually a good thing. You just have to do it well. You have to be a good executioner of that idea and JMS is uh, in comparison to the Game of Thrones writers so you actually have someone who subverts your expectations and a, for an ending does it incredibly well and it's universally considered one of the best endings to a serialized story uh, Babylon 5 has a fantastic ending and even people who detest season 5 as a result of the real life uh, season 4 crunch and the fact that he was told he was cancelled and had to uh, wrap up two seasons in one season so there was a lot of dangling things that that uh, didn't serve the entire idea of season 5 and new, new things had to be added um, the final episode of season 5 was still made during the crunch and before before the new things were added, so it's uh, it's universally considered one of the better better series finales in that regard because it was all it was already planned out, it was already shot before before everything. So boom, it's just inserted in, and it's perfect for the way uh, for what it is. The Londo and Jakar speeches uh, and how that re in relates to what the shadows were wanting. The shadows want a long term plan. Their ideology. So what do you want? It's their question. What do you want implies that you're, you know, you have a motivation. And what is the basis of story? It's the story is conflict. And conflict is garnered by a character wanting something in things or something, or something or someone standing in their way of getting that thing. Um, that is what story is. If you break down story to the basic, most fundamental level, I have just described what a story is. Uh, so... To say that their ideology is conflict is exactly what it is. It's survival of the fittest. Uh, they want to sow conflict in the galaxy in order for uh, for the victors to come out better and stronger. Chaos is what it is. It's conflict. Um, and, uh, of course, the Vorlons represent order, which is why they say, who are you? Because for them, it's more, it's more of a search of identity of being obedient. Who are you to stand up to me? Uh, it's a nice, clever, cl clever turn on what you expect to hear when that question is asked. Uh, and so they believe in cooperation, but only as long as you obey them. No one else. Uh, this is a war of ideology and whether it is an actual shooting war, though it does eventually turn into a shooting war. So, like, when Jakar has no plans beyond, you know, destroying the Centauri, repaying them back in kind, eye for an eye... You know, uh, everything he ha says is all based on vengeance. And when he has no other plans, nothing else the shadows can feed on, he becomes useless. 
there's no reason to go for him. The reason they go for Londo and the Centauri as a whole is because everything Londo says is all about restoring glory, which is which is an open-ended motivation. You can say you're restoring glory in many different ways. And so instead of being being targeted towards one singular idea, which is destroy the Centauri uh, for the Narns, the Centauri is restore glory by becoming the Conquerors again, which means the Shadow can then basically use them and use them as a wild animal and point them in a direction and have them go. A never-ending war machine. Like, go. Go destroy this thing. Destroy that. Uh, and thus they sow their seeds of conflict and create chaos in the galaxy, which is exactly what they want. Um, so fantastic in the, in, in, in the way that even if you don't know the Shadow's motivations, you can still pick up on that idea that Morden was interested in everything Jagar was saying until he mentioned he had no plans other than taking revenge on the Centauri. He basically turned off and walked out. And then the final thing I want to discuss just before I head out here is, of course, as I mentioned before, uh, Sinclair is Valen, the, the, the Mimbari's biggest and most important religious figure, and of course that is why they chose him to be the head of the station. Now, once again, as I was mentioning in the original plan, it was not that for, the, for that not to be the case. So he was more chosen uh, because of the merging souls idea and the fact that he's part of a prophecy of the merging of the human and the Mimbari people uh, that some people believe in, some people don't. Once again, that's no longer the case anymore, uh, as with future stuff. But it's it's still there, and of course he it adds it adds a new layer of mystery, and it still feeds into the Valen concept, uh, even if that was not the original plan. Um, but no, fantastic episode, amazing, amazing setup and foreshadowing pun so absolutely intended, and of course it's great to see arguably the most important scene in the entire series, in which Lando says exactly what he wants, and it's. A fantastic, fantastic scene. Uh, I used to quote it all the time. It's just it's one of those scenes that even if you don't know what the hell's going on, if even if you don't know the rest of the show, it will stand out to you. Because I, I know it did to me when I first watched it. And then, and then as I continued to watch the show and things started connecting back to that scene, I was like, oh my god, he was setting all this up from the beginning. Once again, this is the power of what Babylon 5 is and why Babylon 5 is my favorite TV show of all time. It's because of just how intricate every little single detail is. I mean, Delenn forming the chrysalis right there while talking to Morden, very small detail, not really paid much attention to, but it's there. It's there. And then by the time we get to the end of the season and it becomes a major plot point, guess what? You've been watching her build the thing that she's going to use. Fantastic. Uh, this is what good serialized television should be. And this is what good writing is. Period. Uh, once again, fantastic episode. Fantastic series. Just love, love this episode. Sadly, we are going to be moving on next episode to TKO, which is considered... And in my opinion, one of the worst episodes of Babylon 5, and as I said, in my opinion, I consider it the worst episode of Babylon 5, because while Grey 17 is missing is pretty bad, it has a fantastic B-plot uh, that is not only super important to the ongoing arc, but also important to Marx's character development and Delenn's character development, that the entire Garibaldi A-plot sucks, but you can easily ignore that in regards to everything with the Rangers. Now, TKO 
has that almost the same effect, where its B-plot's actually very good. It's following through with Ivanova's, uh, you know, Ivanova's father's death, which is a really cool idea, and is really well done in the way it handles her faith and everything. But the A-plot with the Garibaldi's boxer friend, awful. So once again, it's like half a good episode. But still, still because of Babylon 5's sheer amount of quality... Uh, which is amazing. A lot of people say you can't do, you know, in every episode, you know, not every episode's going to be essential or good in a, in a 20 plus episode season. There's always going to be duds. Yes, there are going to be duds, but think about it. Batman 5 has what, two to three duds out of 110 episodes plus what, four movies, TV movies. And it tells a very concise, very epic tale across 22 episodes per season equally 110 episodes and it needs every single episode pretty much with like a handful of exceptions to tell the story it wants to tell that that's just the sheer quality that this show is it, there's a reason it's my favorite uh, favorite uh tv show of all time it, it stands above everything else there, there's nothing that even comes close to the amount of quality this show has quite frankly there are things that get close, but nowhere near the sheer amount of quality. People talk about that there's, there's a, there's, you can only have quantity and quality. You cannot have one or one. You can only have one or the other. You cannot have both. Babylon Five gives you both quantity and quality because it gives you tons and tons of episodes per season, and every single one of them, with about three examples, are fantastic. And considering that's the case, is amazing. So after this Longfield rant, yes. I'm going to be covering TKO in next week, so uh, I'm looking forward to going from perhaps one of the best episodes of the entire series to one of the worst episodes of the entire series. But anyway, you can follow me on Twitter at College uh, Share and on Instagram at College Share, where you can get previews of my comic, uh, my writing, uh, anything I'm watching, etc. I'll talk about usually. Uh, you can support me, uh, my writing, and this podcast, and my other podcast that I do with Lily called Nerd vs. Nerd on my Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash kyleshare. And uh, this is perhaps relevant because this episode was on the list. Uh, I, I do articles for a website called The Daily Fandom where I do a lot of uh, comic reviews, movie reviews, TV reviews. I also do uh, these long-form respective uh, series where I did one on The Question, my favorite comic book of all time, and then I'm currently doing one with a friend of mine called Claudia who's appeared on this podcast uh, to do one on The Witcher Saga. But I did one for the 25th anniversary of Babylon 5, the specifically the airing of The Gathering. Uh, last year, I did top five episodes of Babylon 5 uh, so it's called Last Best, the Last Best Hope for the Top 5 Episodes of Babylon 5, and I did it per season, so 5 times 5 is 25, meaning that I did 25 best episodes, for, or 5 from each season, for the 25th anniversary. I thought that was pretty clever. Um, one of my favorite episodes of season 1 is Signs Importance. It ends up on that list. Uh, so if you ever want to like, get an idea of where my headspace is at in regards to Babylon 5, and uh, and what my favorite episodes are going to be. Go read that list because I even talk. I analyze them. I talk about them. I talk about the key developments, what I love, what I don't love about each episode, as much as I can in the word limit I had. Uh, and I also give my favorite interaction, which was fun to transcribe those because uh, there's some great dialogue in the series. Uh, but see you next week. Bye. <laughs>